I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles with me once again to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 10. We're going to cover the whole chapter today. Uh, We're looking at three sermons here remaining in Ecclesiastes, Lord willing, chapter 10, then we'll do 11 and 12 in the following couple of Sundays, and then we're jumping into Philippians, as we have said. But today we're in uh, chapter 10. And as we move into this chapter, uh, we once again have a string of mostly Proverbs here. Uh, Similar, if you remember back in chapter 7, kind of similar, a a string of Proverbs given here. And in this, Solomon continues, surprise, surprise, to compare wisdom and folly, to set these side by side, and to commend wisdom to us, and to warn us from folly. Uh, He has made it clear in the previous chapter, it's been a couple weeks, I guess, now, but uh, he's made it clear that sometimes there are seemingly random events. You remember, time and chance happens to all. Sometimes these random events occur, or they seem that way from our perspective, that would sometimes nullify one's efforts in life, nullify one's intelligence, uh, nullify one's wisdom. Uh, the wise, he said, don't always get the bread. The race is not always to the swift, and so on. And yet, this doesn't render wisdom completely useless. And we've seen this throughout Ecclesiastes. He's constantly promoting wisdom. The whole book is a book of wisdom, trying to help make the Lord's people wise. And yet, at the same time, he's very often also reminding us of the limitations to wisdom also. And so, if we recall from last chapter, yes, it is true, a wise person can experience tremendous hardship and difficulty and and death even, But wisdom is still vastly superior than folly. We don't just pitch wisdom because it doesn't always make everything perfect. And so as one pastor rightly pointed out, chapter 10 here wants us to stay away from folly. It's a warning against folly and it is a summons to wisdom with some rather specific and very practical pointers. And so as we go um, similar to, um, to chapter 7, I'm just going to group these under some general headings as we make our way through. There's there's always question when you go through a chapter like this, how um, related is every proverb? Every proverb, they can really stand on their own, but there is a context, just how, uh, you know, how much does do they refer and, and, and demand the previous proverbs to understand them? Uh, we'll, we'll work through some of that as we go. We're just going to give general headings to these as we work our way through. And so the first one is wisdom and folly. Wisdom and folly. This is just verses one to three. Solomon here picks up where he left off at the end of chapter nine, where if you remember in verse 18, he says, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And then now in verse one, he says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So notice that just a a little bit of sin, the end of chapter 9, and now just a little bit of folly in verse 1 can create a whole lot of harm. Just as a a few, it doesn't take a ton of dead flies to make the perfume stink. Likewise, it doesn't take a lot of sin or a lot of folly to do the same. 
And so this is a warning about the dangers, again, of folly. Even a person who is generally characterized by wisdom should read this and see the dangers of even just a little bit of folly and take heed. Just a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Paul, in speaking of sin, reminds us how just a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's 1 Corinthians 5. And so sin and folly both have great spoiling power, Solomon's showing us. Then in verse 2, he writes, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. So one of the obvious points here is the drastic difference between wisdom and folly, the wise and the fool. They go in completely different directions. They walk opposite paths in life. And verse 3 reveals that even when the fool is just going on his way, he's just walking down the road, he still reveals to everybody that he's a fool. He can't help but give it away even in something very ordinary. When commentator writes, to the practiced eye of Solomon, the fool has no way of disguising what he is. So if one knows what he's looking for, is aware of what is wise and what is foolish, folly will often stand out drastically, even when the fool's not trying to. So this is revealing the gulf between wisdom and folly. But also verse 2 makes another important point. Notice what it is that leads one into folly or wisdom. It is the heart. It is the heart. The wise man, it says, is led to the right. This is not talking about the political spectrum, uh, though some have said such. tempting to just go on about that and make jokes, but we won't. The right in the Bible is associated with strength, is associated with power, is associated with authority. Remember the disciples wanted to sit at the right hand of Jesus? This is the place where you want to be. You want to be on the right. Solomon is suggesting that the wise is heading in the correct and proper direction in life. Whereas the fool is going the opposite direction. They're going the other way, the wrong way. And again, notice the problem is not merely that their actions are wrong, that their actions are doing different things and the fool is wrong and the actions of the right or of the, the wise are correct. But it begins in the heart. The heart is what leads the fool. The heart is what leads the wise as well. This is consistent with the Bible's teaching throughout it that man's problem ultimately is the heart. It is in the very nature. It is in our nature. It's the heart of man, Jesus said, that pours forth wickedness. It's out of what's in the heart that we end up lying and cursing and stealing and all the other sins we commit. Jesus says that in Luke 6, Mark 7 as well. It is the heart of man that was intent on evil before the flood, and even right after the flood waters subside, once again, we're told the very same thing. God says he's not going to do that again. The intention of man's heart is only evil from his youth. 
It is the heart that needs to be made new. And this is, in fact, one of the promises, then, of the new covenant. One of the promises of the gospel. As Ezekiel prophesied in Ezekiel 36, 26, he says, it's the Lord speaking, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Ultimately, if we would truly be wise, we are in need of a heart transplant, of a new heart, a renewal within in which God takes away our sinful heart and replaces it with, as Ezekiel says, with a heart of flesh, where God writes his law upon your heart, where he causes you to be born again or to be regenerate. When we speak of conversion to Christ, a person converts to Christ, It is not simply an intellectual enterprise where someone weighs a few things and then just makes a decision to do it. There is, in fact, an actual conversion of the heart, a change within the individual, a person being born again, as Jesus said to Nicodemus. The bad tree is actually made into a good tree that now bears good fruit. Of course, this doesn't mean that the born-again believer is now perfect, But the heart is new. There is now a vastly different relationship with both sin on the one hand and righteousness on the other. There is now a warring against sin, a disturbance about it. But on the other hand, the fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14.1. Now, whether that fool is, you know, an intellectual atheist or just practically speaking, they live as if there is no God and they'll never be held to account. Regardless, either way, the fool lives with no view toward God and is thereby led into all manner of folly and sin as a result. We have been told in our society over and over again, that we should follow our hearts. And perhaps that advice explains a lot of what we would see around us. And I trust we would see just how bad that advice is when we consider what the scripture says about natural man's heart. So wisdom and folly, these are on opposite ends of the spectrum. There's a vast gulf that separates these two. But even so, Just a little bit of folly has a nasty effect. The application, one of the applications at least here, is obviously to make no peace with folly and sin. If you've not been born again, if you've not had a renewed heart, this is what the Bible declares to you is your great need. It's not just that you've done some things once in a while that aren't good or whatever, is that you need to be made new and only God can do this for you. And he calls you, the the scriptures do, God through his word calls you to recognize this, to see your sinfulness before him and to confess your sin and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for sinners and rose again from the dead, that all who trust in him might indeed be forgiven, be saved, be made new.
And as those made new, let us continually make no peace with sin and folly, even now as we battle. To be on guard against seemingly small follies and sins, we need to hear this warning. You've heard of even ministers who preach the word, preach the gospel, and then usually this does not just happen overnight, but one foolish moment even sometimes, or one foolish act, one foolish sin, a letting down of the guard, and it greatly spoils the message he has proclaimed. It greatly spoils him. He's found out. Everything he's preached comes into question. The honor of Christ takes a hit in the eyes of men. So we have wisdom and folly. The second heading, we have wisdom and rulers. Wisdom and rulers. This is verses four to seven. Solomon, of course, is the king of Israel. And uh, he doesn't get too far without returning to the subject of kings and their subjects. It seems it's never far from his mind. In verse four, he says, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place for calmness will lay great, lay great offenses to rest. Once again, Solomon seems to have a king's advisor in mind as he writes this, as he says to not leave your place. If you remember back to chapter eight and verse three, there he said uh, not to go out hasty from the king's presence. He seems to have in mind a, a, an advisor, one who would be with the king, to not leave your station too quickly, he's saying. He's saying wisdom can help to calm a king down, to calm the ruler down. Perhaps the offense that was given was a legitimate offense and this person needs to assuage the anger of the ruler or perhaps the king is unjustly enraged. Either way, wisdom says to remain calm and not just write off, run off at the first sign of trouble. Even if Solomon does have kings and advisors in mind, the application here I think is, is broad, can certainly be broad. Calmness can, and so often does, diffuse a situation, can diffuse someone who is angry, justly or not. This is true with those who are in authority over us. Now, obviously, uh, this is a proverb. It is a truism, which means it's not always 100% guaranteed. It's not quite as simple as if you just remain calm, then you're going to lay every offense to rest. Generally, this is true. This is helpful. This is what a wise person would seek to do. That obviously it's not always possible to talk down a ruler, an authority. I think, for example, right now, our brothers and sisters who are part of Christ's body who are in Afghanistan, for example. We prayed for them earlier. I think I've seen a few reports that I think are credible reports of Christians who are being killed even now, who have been killed recently, are being hunted down. There are times when they're simply not able to dissuade our overlords. There is a time to leave if possible. Wisdom doesn't get one out of every trouble, but it remains true that calmness is a great aid 
in dealing with those who are angry and with those who are in authority. It can lay great offense to rest. Solomon continues in verse 5, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. The evil that he lays out here is one that is not necessarily deriving from a malicious intent. Uh, He calls it an error of a ruler. That word error is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to unintentional sins. These are still serious matters, an unintentional sin, but not so much a planned evil. And so it seems to be what he's saying here. This is maybe even an unintentional error that rulers tend to make. So despite the fact of what he has already said, that the foolish tend to distinguish themselves even when they're just on the road in verse 3, nevertheless, fools still end up commonly being appointed to high positions places of authority. This is part of the error that he is pointing out here. That part, I think, of this verse, this this section is fairly straightforward. But part of the evil error, he goes on to say, is that the rich sit in low places, slaves riding on horses, and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Now, this is a little harder to know what to make of this. Often in the Bible, when the rich are being addressed, um, they are being called to repent. Often they are seen to be part of the oppressors in society, using their wealth and their riches to further oppress the poor and further enrich themselves. We see that in uh, throughout a number of the Uh, Old Testament prophets, when they are coming after Israel, they come after the leaders and those who are wealthy and they're trampling on the poor. Obviously, this is common. We see this again in the book of James, chapter 2 and chapter 5, warnings against the rich. It's tied in those cases to those who are doing this oppressing. And so it's a little different here to see Solomon suggest that they... This is wrong when they're brought down. And so what's, what's going on here? Well, one possibility is that these categories are not so much about social status, but are really metaphorical of moral status. That the rich, the princes, are those of noble character, while fools and slaves are those who would be unworthy of advancement. Uh, that's, some commentators take it that one, that way. But I think perhaps more likely... It could be that Solomon has a certain expectation that the nobility, the wealthier nobility, would in fact rule, perhaps even having been raised specifically for that purpose, trained for that. Obviously, that is not universally better necessarily. David himself was taken from, t- taken from uh, tending sheep to be a great king over Israel. But having the nobility rule was not necessarily an evil if they ruled with wisdom. Certainly, it would be better than chaos. Somebody who has perhaps zero experience managing anything at all suddenly stepping into the role. So this is perhaps reflecting the expectations and norm of 
Solomon's day. Now, regardless, what Solomon seems to be saying, what he's pointing to here, is that the ruler's error has ended up with folly being exalted, and as a result of that, society being turned upside down. There's chaos. That seems to be what this is saying here. Whether the prince is good and the rich ought to lead or not is really besides the point, which is that a little folly amongst rulers can end up in a complete societal overhaul. Chaos everywhere. I don't think I need to labor hard to convince you that this is true. I hope I don't. Proverbs 28.2 says, When a land transgresses, it has many rulers, but with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. So many rulers in our own country and around the world lack really even basic human common sense, let alone a godly wisdom. It is universally agreed that it is the right of a woman and men, really, to slaughter babies in the womb by the millions every year. And those in high positions of authority love it to be so. We live amongst the people who love it to be so, who want it to be so. It's a sacred cow of our day. That this has been going on for many, many, many years therefore should not surprise us when we see the kinds of other insanity that goes on around us. In a fallen world, fools are going to be exalted to positions of authority. And we can lament it. There's nothing wrong with lamenting it, calling it out, crying out to God about it. But one thing we should not be really is surprised. And while there are legitimate and good actions to take and political actions we might take, better politics won't completely erase the issue of folly. Again, this is an inadvertent error being made. It happens. No matter how fools distinguish themselves, they still end up in important positions. This is what Solomon is telling us. Even through unintentional error, even the wisest kingdoms and the greatest governments fall short. Ultimately, again, we are reminded that our message is therefore Christ. We can and should remind the world of God's law, of what is right and wrong, call our governors to rule well. But we know that this is not what is going to save, that none of this here that we see now, our country, everything, none of this is eternal. Our message is to turn away from looking to earthly kingdoms and instead to look to Christ, who is the eternal king, whose kingdom will last forever. In fact, as we read earlier, will wipe out finally and forever all earthly kingdoms. Our message is to turn away from looking to earthly kingdoms and to look to Christ, the eternal king, who grants eternal life to all who believe. Political and societal stability is good. That is a blessing. 
but it is also relative. There are better and worse kingdoms, but never a perfect one, so long as the world of Ecclesiastes continues, and it will until Christ returns. And so again, our message is to look to the eternal king over the eternal kingdom and to seek our ultimate and eternal refuge in him. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet lose his soul? The third heading here, uh, wisdom and implementation. This is verses 8 to 11. Uh, verses 8 to 11 give important guidance regarding the implementation of wisdom. So verse 8 says, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. So verses 8 and 9 are Proverbs, again, revealing that even doing something good, doing something useful and necessary, comes with a certain amount of danger to it. A pit could bring about your own downfall. A serpent could be hiding in that wall that you're breaking through, looking for as it, as it is seeking shade, that's not as common of a problem for us. That would make a lot more sense to those in Solomon's immediate audience. The stone cutter and the wood splitter are endangered by their very tasks, which are necessary and good tasks in and of themselves. Then verse 10 pictures a man with a blunt sword having to use extra strength in order to make it cut. He's got to repeatedly hack away at this thing. That is, if he doesn't sharpen it first. By contrast, though, wisdom helps one to succeed, he says. So we have our own proverb for this in our society, to work smarter, not harder. The idea in these verses is that wisdom involves thoughtful planning. If you just rush off into any of the tasks in these verses, you can wound up in a lot of trouble. You can wound up actually quite hurt bit by a serpent or having rocks crush you or whatever else. Or in the case of the sword, you can wind up wasting a lot of energy. So the fool runs into action, whereas the wise is thoughtful and charts a course, sharpens the sword before swinging it, takes precaution before cutting rocks or splitting wood. Then verse 11 adds, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. So not only is planning important, but so also is timing. If the snake charmer, that is the, the one who's taming the snake, if he waits too long, the snake's going to bite. So planning is important, but there's also a time when planning needs to be done and you need to act. You can't plan forever, you need to, to act or it's going to be too late. There are all kinds of actions that are like this. And so wisdom then is knowing when to act before it's too late without falling into the error of being frantic or just diving into folly without thinking about things. Now, I think this is a very practical section. It could apply really to almost every single area of life. 
There is much, as we have seen, that is beyond our control, but we're still called to prepare and to plan. This is still wise. This is true at home with our families. It is true with our jobs, as we relate to our neighbors, all kinds of things. We know there are times to act. There are times when planning needs to be done, though, and it's time to do something. It's time to act. We can't just plan forever. We need to execute. There are other matters where urgency is even required. So planning, but also knowing when to act. And I think all of this is true also if we consider spiritual matters. Jesus taught us to count the cost of being his disciple. In a number of places, Luke 14, 25 is one. There's consideration involved, he's saying. We're to know there is suffering, there is hardship for disciples of Christ. Discipleship means death to oneself. This is not just like deciding what you're going to eat for breakfast. Jesus is preparing people, warning, telling us we're to count the cost. And yet, obviously, the matter of being a disciple of Christ is a matter of great urgency. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. There's an urgency to the matter as well. Today is the day. As Ecclesiastes makes clear, we have no guarantee of tomorrow. We've seen continual warnings to that effect. The person who has all these great plans for the future and then dies and has to hand it all over to who knows who. So certainly for the unbeliever, there's an urgency here to repent and believe, to get right with the Lord now, to be ready for death now. I think this idea of counting the cost and, and, and a matter of urgency as well. I, I, Jason sent me a, a video earlier of uh, an evangelist. Many of you know Ray Comfort. And he's, he's witnessing to people. And you can see right in his presentation to them, there's a consideration of the cost. He's pleading with them to think this through. Will you consider these eternal realities? He wants them to think about it. He's not just trying to give them an easy, just quickly pray this prayer and we're done and get on with it. He's, he's pressing it. And yet he's also urgent. Think about this now. <laughs> If you're waiting around in perpetual consideration of the things of the Lord, understand this matter of urgency. On the other hand, if you've just assumed, of course I'm a Christian, without really much thought as to what that means, then there is an importance of counting the cost and believing. This brings us to the fourth section, wisdom and words, wisdom and words. This is verses 12 to 15. A major contrast between the wise and the fool is found in language. Even if a person might be able to fool others around them using lies or hypocrisy, none of this escapes the Lord. Verse 12 says, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor but the lips of a fool consume him. 
The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. So the wise man's mouth, he says, brings favor. He is judicious. He's not running his mouth in various ways. He provides help, wise advice. He speaks truth. He's slow to speak. This typically earns a person a good name, wins him favor. But by contrast, the fool's mouth is said to consume him. His foolish words dominate his language and his life from beginning to end, and it ends in evil madness, he says. Again, madness is a moral category here, not a, just a mental one. In verse 14, the multiplied words of the fool appear to be, he seems to have in mind here, these explanations of what is going to be. The fool simply doesn't know, but that does not stop him from rattling off about, with great confidence about what is to come. Again, perhaps Solomon has in mind an advisor to the king. Regardless, the fool is revealed in his words. One commentator said that our words are the, uh, the acid test of wisdom. The fool is quick to speak, quick to judge, quick to answer, multiplies words, boasts of what will be, asserts himself, gossips, teaches falsely, and on we could go. Uh, James rightly says, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. And then he goes on to call the tongue a restless evil full of deadly poison. The fool's tongue betrays him. So an obvious consideration for us, application, is to be on guard with your tongue. Our mouths do reveal what's in the heart. And if you find yourself under conviction for your words as being perhaps foolish, consider that it is a revelation of something else that's in your heart. Consider what other heart sins might be driving your foolish words and confess those things to the Lord. In verse 15, it's not really talking about words, but it does highlight the stupidity and laziness of fools. The fool is wearied, not so much by labor itself, but at the very thought of labor, since he doesn't even know the way to the city. Perhaps what Solomon is getting at here is that this man's work is in the city. And so no work is so wearisome to him because he doesn't even know how to get there to find work. The whole enterprise is just too much. This isn't talking about a guy who's just worked really hard and he comes home and he's tired at the end of a long day. Just finding work and doing it is just an exhausting thought for a fool. Again, we have the commendation of work. Work is 
difficult, made difficult by the fall, but it is in and of itself not an evil. It is a good thing given to Adam prior to the fall. Commended to us throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, as we have seen. In the remaining verses here, 16 to 20, he returns to the matter of wisdom and rulers. So a reprise here of wisdom and rulers. This is the final category of Proverbs here. Verse 16 says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. These verses contrast two situations. The first is this child king surrounded by princes who feast in the morning, which is to say they're feasting at the wrong time. They ought to be leading. They ought to be working, governing, ruling well, but instead they're partying, they're feasting. A a child king in and of itself is not necessarily bad, but we are reminded, Scripture tells us, that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. And if a child king is surrounded by drunken princes who party during uh, the day when they should be working, this will obviously go badly for the nation. But also, this word child can sometimes be used to refer to somebody who is immature, who is childish. So it could be that Psalm is not just thinking of a, a small child who happens to descend to the throne, but of one who acts like a child, who is immature. By contrast, verse 17 pictures a happy land where the king is the son of the nobility. Again, probably reflecting his understanding that nobility would be groomed for such a purpose, trained, prepared for his task as a king. And if that king is then surrounded by princes who feast at the correct time, not in order to just satisfy their flesh and get drunk, but rather to gain strength so they might then lead well, then this is a recipe for a happy land, for a prosperous kingdom. Few things sully our view of leaders than seeing pictures of them living it up at inappropriate times, inappropriate ways, especially when the nation is in turmoil. like, say, violating their own restrictive lockdown rules or dancing and horsing around on the international stage like children. This is just theoretical, of course. What Solomon's saying here is not hard to understand. The contrast of wisdom and folly in how it plays out in a society in a nation, how it affects a nation. It would certainly seem that we are in a season of woe, of judgment upon our nation from God. As we consider these, what Solomon's saying right here. It's hard to know as we get to verse 18, In these last three verses, if they're 
again, related directly to verses 16 and 17 or not. Um, They could be on their own. They could hold up. But I think we should take them as being um, tied to this issue of ruling. So verse 18, through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. So again, in verse 20, he returns to kings and rulers. So I think it's best to take 18 and 19 as likewise referring to kings and rulers. And so verse 18 then is clear that laziness, slothfulness is a reason why roofs and houses leak. Because they're not fixed, they're not kept up, they're not maintained, they're not repaired. And so if related to rulers, and Solomon is showing that good rulers will not be lazy ones, but they'll be diligent, they'll be hard workers, they'll pay attention to what's going on and do their best to maintain society. And verse 19 then shows the blessing of such hard working and wise leaders. There's bread and there's drink to be had and there's money to go around. Now he says there that money answers everything and probably that is meant to be somewhat hyperbolic. That he's saying that money answers a lot of problems, which is of course very true. And perhaps he's saying it this way, stating this positively, because he's showing us that this, when, when you have wise rulers who are diligent and careful and lead well, there's often abundance and blessing for the people. Now again, throughout the book, we've seen very clearly that some of the wisest, most godly people still die. Righteous people have it happen to them according to the deeds of the ungodly. We know that's true. Prosperity isn't a guarantee under good rulers, but much of the time, wise rulers will guide the people into greater abundance. Wisdom can even quite often overcome a ton of adversity, pestilence, famine, other forms of calamity, whereas evil and folly will almost certainly cause the house to leak, bringing evil and want on the land. And then Solomon closes this section with a warning in verse 20 to not curse the king or the rich, again, probably referring to leaders, knowing that there's a very good chance you'll get found out. So again, the wide person, wise person guards their tongue and is careful. It's not that there is no place for criticism or for pushback or for challenging an evil or foolish ruler, but loose and casual cursing of them is not the trait of the wise. Again, we see many obvious advantages to wisdom. And Solomon is continuing to push us away from folly and toward wisdom. But ultimately, we do not and never will possess a perfect wisdom. We will never have perfectly wise rulers. 
We will struggle ourselves to respond well to authority with wisdom. We will not always know the wise course, though we think about it, though we plan our best. We will sometimes fail to act when wisdom says we ought to act. Wisdom is what we strive for, but we will continue to fall short as we live out our days under the sun. Our cries for wisdom, for wise rule, our cries and desire for justice are met only ultimately in the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the king that you and I need. This is what the whole of scripture is pointing us toward. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes is pointing us towards. All of this vanity, all of these plans that don't come to pass, even the goodness of wisdom not answering everything for us, not providing guarantees of perfect life and safety, etc. The book cries out ultimately for the Messiah. And so as those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are thereby citizens of the kingdom of God, Rejoice in his kingship, where your citizenship ultimately lies and eternally so. And continually turn your eyes to him to seek the things that are above. We, there, is so many, there are so many things that disturb the soul today. And I'll just remind you and encourage you to, yes, we need to understand the times Try to discern well what is wise to do, but to also make sure we spend lots of time turning away from all that would unsettle your soul and and setting your mind on things above. Setting your mind on Christ himself, studying the word of God, seeking the kingdom of God, seeking God's righteousness, being reminded that the ultimate solution to all of these problems is Christ, that your neighbor's greatest need ultimately is to be made right with God, whatever the impending election might turn out to be. Let's not lose focus on this and let us, in fact, rejoice. Rejoice in our citizenship being in heaven, that we are awaiting the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That while what's happening in Afghanistan is obviously tragic, And sad, our brothers and sisters who are dying there are stepping into eternity with Christ. And in the grand scheme of things, they have heeded the words of Christ. They've gained their lives, though they've lost their lives. May it be so for us as well. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we can see that our world is indeed as your scriptures depict. Father, we confess that we are sinners with no hope of 
a justifying righteousness apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we know that no earthly kingdom of man is ever going to be perfect or fulfill our any human hopes with any ultimate degree of satisfaction. Again, Ecclesiastes makes these matters very clear. Father, we thank you that our citizenship as those trusting in Christ is in heaven and that we await the return of our Lord Jesus to consummate his kingdom. The time when our souls and our bodies will be resurrected, immortal and imperishable. And we will dwell with you forever. And no more will we have this battle with sin. No more will we be vexed as we look out at what's around us. Father, I pray that this would restore our joy where we have perhaps lost it, that you would help us to spend time meditating on these truths. And Father, we do pray for mercy yet, for mercy on neighbors, for those around us. Father, with all of these things said, we still desire to live peaceful and quiet lives. And you've said it's good to pray for that. It's still a good thing. And so we do pray for that. We pray for mercy, though we deserve it not. Though we have unclean lips ourselves and certainly dwell in a people amongst a people of unclean lips. Father, if it was true in Isaiah's day, it is true now. Father, I pray that you would give us opportunity to proclaim Christ to people, to point people away from the politics of our day to the eternal King. Give us opportunity, give us courage to take those opportunities. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We have no claim to anything good you've done to us as being in, any, in ourselves in any way. Father, you, you show us mercy that you might be glorified as the merciful God. Father, lift our heads, lift our eyes, strengthen our weak knees. May we behold your greatness and the greatness of Christ. Bless our fellowship as it continues. In Jesus' name, amen.